Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Three months after his aging daughter, Rhonda, gave him a one-year-old poodle lab golden retriever mix to keep as a pet, Felder came to believe that the dog, who looked at him mournfully whenever he went to the bathroom and waited for him by the door, as still as a statue until he came out, was in fact none other than the reincarnation of his sister, Esther. May her name be a blessing. Esther, who was seven years his elder and his de facto mother, had been taken to Bergen-Belsen during the war and had never been heard from since. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Jennifer Ann Moses. Her new book of short stories, The Man Who Loved His Wife, covers a wide range of unhappiness and longing in children, siblings, parents, and lovers. It spans decades and countries, cities, and regions, filled with people of all ages who are hoping and dreaming or disappointed and fed up. And there's an undercurrent of Jewish life, Yiddish culture, and a world of longing. These are stories of Jews who are always aware of their otherness despite living the good life in the land of the free. Hi, Jennifer. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, Galit. Thank you for inviting me to join you. So how and when did you begin writing the stories that formed this collection? Uh, The truth is I started writing them some years ago. Um, I write the way most writers of fiction do. The, The ideas kind of come to me in not so much in my mind as in my kishkas. And I try to catch them before they they evaporate. And so I started writing the stories years ago. um, And what happened was I eventually had a whole bulk of short stories sort of within the Yiddish and Jewish tradition. And I realized I probably had enough to form a collection. So I started thinking about how to put them together and I put them together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's pretty much what happened. Yeah. I noticed many university professors of one kind or another throughout the stories. Mm-hmm. What's your connection or why are you drawn to characters who work in that profession? Well, my husband is a professor of law. So um, I, I've been living I've been living with that for 32 years. Um, and also, I think in my my um, other life, the one I'm not living, I would have been a professor of something. I, in fact, when I was in college and I, I took this deep dive into Yiddish literature and novels in general, I, I like to tell people I, I majored in, in reading novels because that's pretty much what I did. I majored in reading novels and in bad boyfriends. Um, but during that time, I was trying to think of what I could possibly do for a living since all I really liked to do was read. And I, I thought seriously about going on and getting a, a master's or a PhD in, in English and literature. Um, 
but I really didn't want to. So, um, but it sort of it lives inside me is that alternate, uh, that alternate life that, mm. that I might have pursued, but but never did. Mm-hmm, so I that's get it. probably why there's so many teachers and professors. Okay. In, in my, in my work. You, al- yeah. you also write a lot about anguished characters who suffer, who have suffered a loss or, or who are about to suffer loss. What about that situation interests you? Anguished characters. I didn't really think about the collection or my characters in particular as being anguished. Um, I, um, I'm really trying to think hard about this. As, as I just said, I'm a great and passionate lover of Yiddish literature. And what's so brilliant and satisfying and full and rich for me about the great, the great novels and short stories of the masters of Yiddish is that they, they bring us into a, a very tragic comic world where there is, in fact, you know, conflict and, uh, and terror and drama and joy and friction as, as both within the characters and, and around them. Um, and I think maybe I imbibed so much of, of that literature from, from Babel to both, you know, I.B. and I.J. Singer that perhaps it, it came out in these stories in a way that I wasn't even conscious of until right now. Um, you know, you, you, you got to suffer if you want to sing the blues as the great rabbi <laughs> Bob Dylan, I think, said. So, so maybe the stories um, just just reflect that sort of truth at the bottom of, of all literature. Mm-hmm. So now let's talk about some of the stories. How did The Uncircumcised come to be the first story in the collection? Well, I'm so glad you asked me about The Uncircumcised. Um, I actually have a funny story about The Uncircumcised, which is that The Uncircumcised was originally the title of the entire collection. And my editor said, we can't do that because we will get weirdo email. And I said, (laughs) no, that's not possible. She said, possible. So what happened with the, uh, I put it as as the first because I love it so much. And I wanted to put the one I love the most up front. Um, That said, The Uncircumcised came to me originally Maybe 20 years ago, I was walking my little mutt, Marion, through City Park in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which is where we then lived in Baton Rouge. And this idea just kind of jumped into my head to write a story about a dog who spoke Yiddish. And I got all excited. And when I got back to my house, I sat down and I wrote two marvelous paragraphs and stopped in my tracks because that's all there was. And I thought, no, okay, that's it. Nice idea. And I put it aside, didn't think about it until several years later when I came across those two paragraphs in my, in my computer and the rest of the story just fell out of me. So that mm. was, yeah, that was one of those wonderful kind of God moments. Mm-hmm. I love when that happens. Yes, I know. It's really, it's kismet. It's the muse. I call, I call it downloading from God. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so that was one of your favorites. Which was your second favorite? Oh, I, 
you're asking me to, it's like you're asking me to no. name which okay. one of my children, but I will say I do have a favorite child, which is my daughter, because she's the only girl. Um, <laughs> and all, all my children know that Rosie is my favorite. It's become a bit of a, um, <laughs> a family joke, but okay. I, I don't have a favorite. You know, I do love them all. I love the teacher, the story, the teacher. Um, be- well, tell us why. I, why do we love the teacher? Well, that one kind of fell right out of me also. Now, the story of the teacher also has a backstory. Um, the story of the teacher, I don't want to give it away. The, the teacher is the story of a group of, of grown, really past middle-aged women um, who come to terms with having been badly abused by by a teacher at a prep school and um, and how that plays out in the community and how that plays out for the narrator who her, herself was a student at that same prep school but not a victim. So in fact, I went my, my crazy as loom's parents raised me and my siblings in the Eurowasp capital of Northern Virginia, where there were literally like more cows than Jews. And they sent me and my siblings to the equivalent of an English, of an English uh, public school where we danced around the Maypole and we sang Latin songs and I acted in the Christmas play and so forth. And, and I was very kind of out of place there. Um, and there was indeed a teacher who preyed on young girls. Uh, and when the story, the story eventually hit the, hit the newspapers, it became a very public scandal some years ago. And again, this story just kind of popped out of me. And one of the reasons I, I love the story um, is because it gave me as a child a voice as an adult to, to narrate how strange it was for me, the real me, Jennifer of Moses, not the narrator in the story, but the real me, to be a Jewish child in this in this um, very very waspy kind of buttoned down, buttoned up uh, world that wasn't that wasn't really you know na- natural to me. It, it's not that I in any way suffered anti-Semitism so much as I suffered being out of place. Um, Anyways, also, I just thought it was a rip-roaring story, so I, you know, I like the ones that work. Yeah. Um, I loved the beautiful story about a father whose son becomes increasingly religious, the Holy uh, Messiah. Yes. Is the father ultimately glad that his son found something about which he was so passionate? I don't think so. Do you, do you think he was? I, as I was reading that, writing that story, I I was writing a father who was just completely grief stricken mm-hmm. and mystified, and I think he even says he loses his son Etai twice, once to sort of an extreme version of Haredi Judaism in Israel, and and, and again um, to and then again, of course, to, to war. Um, I will say that that story. Um, I didn't completely pluck out of thin air. Our eldest son served in the IDF um, and was uh, in the uh, 2014 
uh, war in Gaza, he was in Gaza um, in an elite unit, which, of course, you know, uh, we were enormously proud of him, but we were enormously worried. Um, Mm -hmm. And he, he, you know, very, very happy ending. Not only did he get out without having harmed another soul and without he being harmed himself in any way, but he got out and went immediately to his huppa in Jerusalem. Now that was a happy wedding. Yeah, that yeah. sounds wonderful. You have wonderful. some amazing, amazing zingers throughout that I wanted to collect and memorize. Oh, so, yeah. for example, my favorite line in my cousin's heart was, yes. black is such a retro cliche, it transcends itself. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So my question is, do you start with the zinger and build a story around it, or does it just appear in your mind during the writing of the story? They all they all just come to me. As I said, and it sounds so pretentious, and you must forgive me, but when I'm writing well, I'm, I'm downloading. I don't feel that I'm concocting or forcing or coming up with language or story. It's sort of just coming to me. It's like singing through, through me and coming out and coming out my hands and onto the computer. Um, I I guess I can in person be kind of zingy myself. Um, But again, it depends on the mood. I have days when, I'm, you know, tongue-tied and, and sort of stupid and other days when I'm more articulate and like myself better. <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, no, it does. Um, in another story, a middle-aged woman in an unhappy marriage desperately wants her aging mother to die. Yes. Can you, can you talk about the genesis for that story? Yes. Um, so <laughs> my real life mother died 17 years ago uh, after um, a very long bout with cancer. uh, My mother died of ovarian cancer. And when she was given her initial prognosis, she was given two years and she managed to live more than eight. So that was good. Um, But in the meantime, her, her mother, Jenny, after whom I'm named, just kept getting older and older and older. And um, she was well, getting well into her 90s. And she she insisted on continuing to live in her big house in the suburbs and fill in the blank. What happened is what happens to all old people who are beginning to, to, to lose it, um, lose their capabilities. And so eventually somebody had to look after my grandmother and even though my mother had cancer and has a brother and a sister, that somebody was my mother for all kinds of reasons, mainly uh, mainly having to do with my mother's enormous competence coupled with her ability to handle her mother. My aunt and uncle just couldn't because my grandmother was unbelievably impossible. So, And she was also grand and intelligent and charming. Um, but 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 my grandmother did not get under my mother's skin. So mom took Nana. We called Jenny Nana. So flash forward a few years and Nana's getting older and older and older and more and more feeble. I mean, she's 96 now. And my mother has only a few months left to live because she was dying of cancer. She was at the end of her rope. She knew it. She was on oxygen. She was in hospice. 
<laughs> and there was sort of a race to see who would die first. And now <laughs> both my mother and my grandmother were enormously competitive. Just like, why not make a rivalry over anything? And so my mother would joke that this was a race that she wanted her mother to win. Right. Because she really needed to continue seeing her mother out into the world. And indeed, she did. My grandmother died in November, and my mother died in February. Oh, yeah. what a difficult time for you that must have been. It was, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was, um, in, in real life, we, um, we were still, my husband and children and I were still living in Baton Rouge. My parents were living in the family home in Virginia where we'd all grown, my, my siblings and I grew up. And because we knew it was my mother's last Thanksgiving, we flew to to the Washington area to have Thanksgiving with my parents, something we hadn't done in the past because it was too long of a schlep, the worst weekend to travel, school, this, that. This year, of course, we went. So we, we went for Thanksgiving, and the next day we took our kids for lots of fun to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, and I got a call from my father saying, you need to go to your grandmother's home, the the old age home where she was living now. And so in the end, I I got to see my grandmother out in the world. My mother went, had gone earlier that day, had kissed her mother goodbye and gone back home. And my father and I saw my grandmother out uh, out of the world. Um, which was enormously huge, a huge blessing for me because I knew all my grandmother's stories from her childhood and I was able to tell her about all, all her, her grandparents, her grandfather and grandmother and great-grandparents and aunts and uncles who she'd be seeing. And my father and his mother-in-law, my grandmother, had been butting heads for the more than 40 years, close to 50 years of my parents' marriage and their dad was seeing, seeing the grand old lady out. So it was, you know, it was kind of like one of these Mazel Tov, you know, mm-hmm. like to my grandmother, I felt like Mazel Tov, you did, you did good. She lived till she was 96. Mm-hmm. She was the first woman president of the board of the New York Federation. Wow. She was something else. A dynamo, huh? She was beautiful and charming and impossible and wonderful. <laughs> you know, that story about your grandmother and your mother explains the theme that is woven through the collection about women who are diagnosed with cancer or battling cancer or losing the battle. It, it, it explains it all. It explains it more to me. You don't even have to say anything more if you don't want to, but yeah. it's really interesting. Well, um, right. I mean, a novel I, or a story I haven't written uh, yet and may never write is the story of how I had cancer at the same time as my mother. That was fun and games. Um, mm. I was again very protected. Again, I, uh, as I understand it, by a very protective um, divinity. It was my husband's sabbatical year from LSU, and we were in Glasgow, Scotland, for the year. So I didn't have to tell my mother. Um, because, which was much, much better for me because she she was a very Jewish mother and she worried 
And I didn't need her worrying, and I certainly didn't need to know about her worrying. So it was protective to me that mom didn't know I had cancer until I was done, at which point I told her. And she was kind of, she, she, was, she was shocked, um, but she was glad I had told her because it was the truth. Um, so, so that, that was, that was quite a thing, <laughs> you know, talking to my mother long distance from Glasgow and she's telling me about, you know, all her hair falling out and how nauseated she is. And I'm like, I'm bald and I'm nauseated, <laughs> but I didn't say that. Wow. I couldn't, that was, that was, that was quite a time. But interestingly, in your story, story of my socks, yes. the mother also is diagnosed with cancer. Yes. The question I wanted to ask you about that story mm-hmm. um, is about the Holocaust, because mm-hmm. the Holocaust is another thing that appears several times. Mm-hmm. And in this story, um, it appears through the eyes of a nine-year-old boy. Of the nine-year-old. So that nine-year-old boy is really me. Um, I mean, the deepest, you know, the deep emotional resonance of that child, um, because I, as a child, and I, I grew up, as I said, in Northern Virginia, and it was wooded, and it was horsey, and it was farms, and it was also very, it was all Democrats, too. Um, it was very liberal in those days, and um, there wasn't a hint of our Jewish family not belonging there. Um, and nevertheless, when I cottoned on to uh, what had happened to our people in Europe um, and then began to read a little bit of, of, about um, those years, I, I developed an immense fear of Nazis. So that little boy in, in that story is, is in some ways really me, mm. emotionally, as emotionally. Okay. Me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, in Do This Together, the four adult children are heading with their father to plan the mother's funeral. Right. And each one remembers growing up in the big house surrounded right. by what they call horsey people. Right. Which is just how you right. mentioned. Um, so, so how autobiographical... Okay, let me ask you this. How, does every story have a trace of something autobiographical? Every story is me. One way or another, um, you know, I mean, they just, they come out of me. So they're, they're me somehow. Um, I mean, I concoct stories and plots and characters and settings and clothes and dialogue out of thin air, as it were, as, as all writers do, but they're, they're all iterations one way or another of me and my understanding and my struggles and my challenges and my confusion and um, my yearnings and my dreams and my memories. So again, that was not a real specific answer. <laughs> so yes, the answer is That's yes. Right. <laughs> um, okay, one more story I want to ask about. Yes. Skipped, uh, the girl who is skipped ahead from second to third grade oh, yes. and her sister beats her with a belt. Yes. And it changes her entire life. Yes, it does. (laughs) That is not, that is actually, um, I have a friend who told me that, not a good friend at all, somebody who was like more like a friend of a friend in in the days when we all used to do things like go out for coffee and and lunch. She told this story about how she was almost entirely derailed by her older sister when she was skipped ahead of grade, not ahead of her sister, but was skipped ahead of the grade. And the older sister was so envious 
that she hit her with a belt. Okay. And from there, and then the, the actual real person who told me the story wasn't derailed like my, like uh, my narrator, my character was, um, and how she it led to family problems. But, you know, she ended up going to a very fine college and getting married and having a career. In fact, this, the real person who told me the story is an, is an English teacher in a high school um, not far from me in New Jersey. Um, but in the story, I had her, yes, I, I, I had her completely derailed and leaving home and um, and going way off track and being desperate. And finally, again, finding herself, oddly enough, through literature, now that I'm thinking about how the story wends its way to a happier place. Mm-hmm. It's when she it discovers books, she discovers her own brilliance and ability, abilities and, and, and finds peace. Yeah, I'm wondering, um, there's not a lot of love lost between siblings. Yeah. <laughs> there's my answer. Right? Yeah, I grew up in that. You know, my, my family was not ideal. I'll, I'll just put it that way. There, there were, there were problems. Um, and uh, my parents inadvertently set their four children up to compete with one another. And and I'm sure that comes out in, in mm-hmm. all my writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So interesting. Okay. One, uh, another question. How did you come to your interesting perspective on Jewish life and Jewish people? So when you say interesting, I'm not exactly sure what you mean because for me, you know, it's, it's sort of the old cliche Two Jews, three opinions. Three, <laughs> three Jews, five novels. Um, I think, I suspect that every Jewish artist, particularly in the literary arts, who's who's working, you know, who's working this room, this Jewish room, has their own perspective um, based on their own life experiences on what it means to be a Jew, what it means to live as a Jew, think as a Jew inhabit a Jewish skin, whether or not that, that Jewish skin includes kosher or Talmud or anything traditional. Um, so I myself was raised, um, you know, a completely deracinated Jew, I would say, as I said, in Virginia. Um, my father, meantime, went to Orthodox shul, and my parents, between the two of them, supported four different shuls that we didn't go to. My father went to. We didn't go. Um my mother was a what I call Christmas tree reform. Uh, she'd grown up in Scarsdale in a very well-off kind of yucky German Jewish reform, but very Jewish world. Um, she knew, of course, she was friendly with Jews and non-Jews. It was it was a, a nice mix for her growing up, and then went off to college with a similar social mix. My father grew up much more um, centrally Jewish, walking with his father and his uncles. Uh, twice a week to to shul and sitting with the men in shul and um, it, it was Baltimore and they they weren't Orthodox but um, almost <laughs> I mean I would say the practice that they had was Orthodox but the shul was not it was conservative his own great grandfather had laid the cornerstone for the first synagogue in Baltimore. Um, which still stands, although it's 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 the Lloyd Street Synagogue, I believe it now 
um, now houses the Jewish Historical Society. I could be wrong um, on that detail. However, so I, I, I grew up really not knowing. I knew, of course, I knew I was Jewish, and we had Friday night, um, and we had the prayers, but I didn't know an aleph from a bet. I had never heard of such a thing as a Talmud. Um, I didn't know any Yiddish words that I hadn't actually heard in Woody Allen movies. And then I went to college. I went to Tufts in Boston, and there were Jews there at the time. Um, it was pro- I'm, I'm guessing it was probably about 15% Jewish undergrads when I was there. So that's a, a pretty hefty Jewish minority. And I met Jews who, unlike me, had kind of grown up knowing full well that they were Jews and what that meant and what that was for them. And I just didn't. So I began to study and I began to want this thing that other people, especially my father, had that I didn't. And so I, I kind of um, made my own way into Judaism in a way that was meaningful for me um, a, as I came into adulthood and then, and then continued just getting old and then, you know, older and older. And, and that's a journey I, I'm still on um, because it was not my birthright. It was not my childhood or my growing up years. Um, it was something I, I, I had to struggle with and fight for. Um, interestingly, my, my, my older son, as I said, served in the IDF. And my younger son is Orthodox, mm. um, kind of hippie Orthodox, you know, very spiritual, very loving and open, uh, rather than the rigidity that c- can come in certain forms of very traditional Judaism. Um, and our daughter mainly likes to shop, so that's fine too. Right? <laughs> they're, they're all good. They're all wonderful. They all grew up to be benches, and like, who cares about the rest? All right. That's the best story of all. Right. So, Jennifer, what are you working on next? So I am – oops, I just – sorry, dropped an earbud. Um, I am elbow deep in a – rewrite of a novel based um, that starts with four graduate students in the same creative writing MFA program and follows them up through the years. And I'm still working out some of the kinks. And I'm also have start, embarked on with my husband, God help us both, a novel. Um, I, I'm doing the writing and he's sort of like the coach, he reads it, he says, I don't get this, I don't get that. And he's very, very helpful with plot that we're tentatively calling the Rebbe of Baton Rouge. Mm. Because, of course, we were very involved in our small but knockout great Jewish community, really small Jewish community in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And we started talking one day. Wouldn't it be funny to write a story about, like, a kind of Yiddishkeit rabbi who comes to be the rabbi of the synagogue in Baton Rouge and it's this culture shock and this happens and that happens. And so just just beginning tentatively the first few few chapters of, of that project. But I I am sort of seem to be in a Jewish phase of my of my writing in, in general. Um, if you've looked at my resume, which you have, I've I've written a lot, and I've written a lot outside of anything to do with Jews, Judaism, Jewish culture, Jewish civilization um, also. But now I seem to be hitting, <laughs> hitting my, my genetic inheritance in a big time. 
hope it's all successful and that you you managed to get through, you know, finish with both books. Yes, really. (laughs) If I live that long. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining today. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Absolutely a joy. Thank you, Galit. And thank you for joining me. Again, this is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with author Jennifer Ann Moses about her short story collection, The Man Who Loved His Wife. Hope you'll all be able to lose yourself in a good book today and tomorrow too. Happy reading.